Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Wednesday, October 18th, 2017, is a Bonnie and Richard Reese lecture in constitutional history and law. We will first hear introductory remarks by Dr. Louise Muir, New York Historical's president and CEO. In the conversation, Samuel Isakaroff, the Bonnie and Richard Reese professor of constitutional law at NYU School of Law, and journalist Jeffrey Tubin discuss America's democratic institutions. Welcome to the New York Historical Society. I'm Louise Mirror, New York Historical's president and CEO, and I'm really thrilled to see so many of you. Uh, as I was just saying, there's a bit of competition tonight, but here you are um, in our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium, and we know why. We have fabulous speakers and a great topic tonight. This evening's program, America's Fragile Democracy, is the Bonnie and Richard Reese Lecture in Constitutional History and Law. I am um, very lucky indeed to uh, be able to personally thank Richard Reese, the chair of our executive committee, who is here with us this evening, for his uh, key role in determining that we should have a series focused on, uh, on topics in constitutional history and law. I want to thank Rick, but I also want to say, um, for many of you who did not know Bonnie Reese, uh, I want to say how much we we miss her and um, how sad we all are that she can't join us this evening, that she is no longer with us. So I just want to say that, and it's emotional for all of us, um, but I do want to recognize that we really miss her. And uh, anyway, thank you, Rick. Jeff, before we start, yes. can I just uh, uh, echo Louise's comments? I've, for the last uh, over a decade, I've been the uh, Bonnie and Richard Reese professor at, at NYU. And uh, um, it's been you know, a great thing to support intellectual endeavors the way that Bonnie did. But over the time, uh, she became a friend also. So uh, this is a somewhat sad occasion, also joyful and in that mixed way. Indeed. Hello, everyone. How's everybody doing? Um, Hi, Sam. Hey, Jeff. Sam is my friend. He's my mentor. He taught me all this voting rights stuff. Um, And it is a great pleasure to blame him for everything that has happened for the past 20 years. Okay, here we're going to conduct an experiment. At least for the first five minutes, we're not going to talk about he who shall not be named. We're going to try to do, like, some bigger things, okay? Um, All right. So when the Soviet Union fell, Francis Fukuyama famously said it was the end of history. Liberal democracy had triumphed. We don't need to discuss anything else anymore. What, like, that didn't work out like that. So, what? like, what happened? It's, an, it's one of the most unbelievable things. We fought the entire 20th century as one war after another, 
almost all of them ideological wars, uh, democracy against fascism, democracy against communism. And then when the Berlin Wall fell, it was over, and there was nothing else standing. There was no ideological inheritor that could challenge democracy. We had not yet witnessed 9-11. We hadn't seen uh, the Islamic turn uh, or the religious turn in much politics around the world. And it seemed a moment when it was really true. Democracies just do things better. They innovate better. They engage their citizens. Uh, they provide more comforts in their life, more security. It just seemed impossible that this was not the end. And, uh, you know, Fukuyama is a brilliant political scientist who wildly overstates one thing after another. That's why he's famous. Um, and so you should follow, yeah, and uh, you try. And, yeah. uh, and so there is, uh, there is a sense in which he was right, and then all of a sudden it fell apart. Well, now, when we, you say it fell apart, how, what in particular fell apart? Well, if you just look at the total number of democracies in the world, the peak came in about 2002. And since then, Freedom House and all the other entities that measure this, it's been dropping, dropping, dropping. You have less freedom in the world, less press freedom, more political dissidents in prison, just any measure that you have. And then the most critical thing, and I think that one of the things that that, uh, was most shocking for me was the moment of the Arab Spring. It's hard to remember because it's 10 years ago. But the moment of the Arab Spring, you thought it could even happen there. Countries that have no tradition of popular engagement, that have had these brutal uh, regimes, either military regimes or religiously inspired theocratic regimes, it could happen there. The ordinary people, and we saw perhaps an illusion, but we saw people come into the square in in Cairo or in Damascus, and they kind of looked like us. They wore blue jeans. They had iPhones. We we had this feeling that the world really was flat, to use Tom Friedman's expression, and it was accessible to all of us that way. But? But (laughs) then it turned out it wasn't. And it turns out that... Uh, we had a very simple notion of what a democracy is. We thought that a democracy was you just hold an election. And this was the naivete of the United States going into countries like Iraq and Libya. All we have to do is topple the dictatorship, and people naturally want to be like us, right? And so all they have to do is get to vote, and vote one time for the head of state, and it all falls into place. It turns out... It didn't quite work. The mission was not accomplished. I have a secret for you all. But it didn't work. And the reason it didn't work is that democracy is a complicated process. Most of all, you need institutions so that people can participate. You need political parties. You need legislatures that function. You need rule of law. You need the capacity to distribute the wealth in some kind of equitable fashion so that people feel that they're engaged in the society. And that didn't take hold. So sure, you could have an election, you can bring in the UN observers, you can bring in Jimmy Carter as a foreign observer, and then the election is done, and guess what? It all goes back to civil war, it all goes back to the fact that there's corruption, that there's lack of civil society. Okay, so, you know, let's, Sam and I were talking earlier, and he said, look, I don't want to be totally depressing. And and you're doing a very poor yes, job yeah. of that so far. 
Um, the, um, but, but I have but, a joke to tell. No, 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 we'll, we'll, get, we'll get to that. Um, so, so let's talk about, let's sort of focus on the United States here. And, and you, you're very interested in institutions. You know, people like me, we're very interested in personalities and political parties and, and sort of the, the, the very sort of public um, manifestations of the institutions that underlie what we're working on. And, and you, you've written a, about these a lot. And this, it seems, is the, the changes in institutions and the evolution of institutions contribute to the, 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 the way – the, the day-to-day news unfold. So are we past our five minutes? Uh, yes. Okay. Um, Go for it. So let me, <laughs> let me give some examples. Um, FDR comes in. We have a national crisis. It, it was fine to mention him. That wasn't what oh, I was talking oh, oh, about. Oh, I didn't realize. Oh, didn't, oh FDR's sorry. okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> so he comes in. We have a national crisis. We have a need to do things. And how does he, how does he change the United States. How does he create the New Deal? Through legislation. There were 90 pieces of new legislation passed by Congress in the first 100 days. You know, we always talk about the first 100 days. That's when it started. The idea that you had to go to Congress, there had to be policy, there had to be political leadership, there had to be a way of organizing the state that required leaders, that required political leaders of, a, of the old-fashioned sort. By the time you get to Bill Clinton... The number of new pieces of legislation in the first 100 days is 13. By the time you get to uh, George W. Bush and Obama, 8, 9, 10, depending how you count them, very few. By the time you get to President Trump, first 100 days, first 10 months, zero. There is not a substantial piece of legislation, which doesn't mean that he's not an active president. It doesn't mean that Obama was not an active president. It doesn't mean George W. Bush was not an active president. It's just our institutions, that institution, Congress, has collapsed. And so we do everything by executive fiat now, administrative agencies, executive orders. And if you go back to our constitutional design, Article One is Congress. The framers thought that we were going to be governed by Congress. They thought that the executive that they'd set up was probably too weak. That was their concern. And now we've lost Congress as that kind of institution. So that's a big part of it. Well, that's a big part of it. And and part of it has to do with the power of political parties, which is something you, you have written about. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, everyone talked about and, said, well, you know, this is going to be really easy for Trump because he controls the presidency, the Republicans control the presidency, the uh, Senate and the House of Representatives, and still no major legislation. So, again, stepping aside from, you know, what's happened for the past 10 months, why are political parties less powerful than they were in previous decades in the United States? If you go back... uh our framers thought that we would not have political parties. They, wanted to, they thought political parties were something they called factions. They wanted to prevent them. They thought you would separate power at the top between Congress and the president and the courts, and you would have federalism, but you would have nothing between the government and the people. And that vision failed immediately. They got that spectacularly wrong. And in the first contested election, 1796, they went riding around trying to organize people for the vote. They realized that you needed something between 
the government up top and the people b- below. And by the time Tocqueville came to America in the 1830s, what he noticed most was these Americans, they just organize themselves and organize and organize. And in the 1830s, we started to create political parties. And what did they do? They, gave, they gathered the funds necessary to run political campaigns. They gave out jobs. So patronage is a bad word, but it was a good thing. Patronage was how generations of immigrants got integrated into America. And they controlled the nomination of the candidates. So the parties had coherence and they had a message and they had a point. What have we done? We've taken away the capacity to raise money. In the name of campaign finance reform, you can't give money to political parties anymore. Not meaningful money. That's why it all goes super PACs in one way or another. They don't control the nominations anymore. We have primaries instead. And patronage, we got rid of. These are hollow institutions. And so it turns out that when you have somebody who wants to challenge the establishment, the core of the Democratic Party, the Clintons, and he's not even a member of the Democratic Party, and he almost defeats her. And then you have somebody who's been a lifelong Democrat in New York who probably sat in this room at some point. Oh, I so uh, doubt oh, that. Oh, you doubt that? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I could you get that You were going so well. <laughs> have you been paying attention? <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry. Please proceed. I no, just, in those days wait. he was, uh, anyway, he, was, he had no relation to the Republican Party. He runs as an outsider. No connection, no institutional connections whatsoever, and he takes it over. These parties don't exist anymore. You know, when we were kids, and you had something like North Korea, who did you look to to try to understand? You looked to the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. You know, those were the wise, old Washington hands. They represented the distilled wisdom of the experience of the parties in government. Who knows anybody who's on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee? Well, Corker wrote, you know, denouncing. So, yeah, okay, so we know his name now. But you couldn't name that committee now. But but, um, the money thing, I think, is very interesting. I mean, you know, Lyndon Johnson was this, you know, famously successful majority leader of the Senate in the the 50s. the, the, the difference is, you know, people talked about the Johnson treatment and, you know, he would lean in and he would... T- but he also, he controlled money for campaigns in a way that Mitch McConnell couldn't possibly control money for campaigns. Isn't, isn't that... Yeah, I used to be a, a law professor in Texas before I moved to New York. And before I had, held the Reese professorship, I held other professorships at Texas. And when I moved there and I read the Cairo biographies, I realized that every one of my professorships was named after a bag man for LBJ. And so, yes, uh, you learn. Um, Okay. Is the reason that Congress is not passing laws because political parties are weak, or are are there other reasons as well? If you go to the level of political theory, and I won't, but if you go to the level of political theory, Feel free. Um, you have a problem that everybody has different interests. And how do you harness them? How do you get people to not spin off in lots of different directions? And the way we've done this in American governance is we have a strong committee structure. We have people who can engage in what's called agenda settings. They can make sure your piece doesn't come to the floor unless you vote the way you're supposed to vote. So the committee structure was strong and the party leadership was strong. And if you wanted to get ahead, If you wanted to get money for your next campaign, you had to play ball inside the party. 
Nowadays, we have people like Ted Cruz, who shows up in the Senate and doesn't do any work in the Senate and is immediately running for president within two years of getting there. That could never have happened in the way past. But it's not just a Republican issue because Barack Obama did the exact exactly. same thing. Yes, and I, so I, I was hoping. You yeah, of say course. That. Yeah, that's, but that, that, but, but inconceivable know. that Obama could have been a candidate in that fashion. Even Jack Kennedy, the youngest, had done his time, had already played up inside the party apparatus, and certainly he had his father, who had uh, greased the, the skids of the uh, Democratic Party for a long time. Now, you are you are saying these things descriptively, is, is the world better or worse without politi- strong political parties? I think political parties organize our political power. And when we do that, we can get things done. The National Highway Acts of the 1950s were inconceivable without the organization through Congress, without a strong executive, without agencies playing the support role, but not the lead role. When you have no political organization, then it's hard to get things done. And then all of a sudden, getting things to work becomes a one-off deal. And it's, you know, here again, it's, it's kind of frightening that we elected somebody who says, I'm the art of the deal, right? I'm the one who can make one-by-one one accommodations, not policy, not a person who has a vision, but somebody, I will do it on a one-by-one basis. And then things don't get done. And that's really the challenge to democracy. The, the claim that we used to make as democratic countries is we're just better. We innovate. You know, the Industrial Revolution, that was in England. It wasn't in czarist Russia. And the uh, high-tech revolution, that was in America. It wasn't in the Soviet Union. And we had a pride in, in our capacity to innovate and to get things done. Now, all of a sudden, you look at the infrastructure of the United States, and I travel a lot around the world. You go to places that are pretty enlightened, despotic regimes, Singapore, China, and you land at an airport, and you take the public transportation or the highway into the city, and you feel embarrassed for when you come back to it. Well, you feel horrified every time you land at LaGuardia. I mean, that's just a, that's just a given. But it's, it's, they're working on it. Yeah, they're working no, on they it. Are, actually. Yeah, except when they decided to work on it, they decided to tear down some things, but they didn't make plans for how people would get there. So we had those wonderful uh, pictures of people getting out of cabs on the Long Island Expressway and dragging their suitcases. That doesn't happen in Singapore, right. let me tell you. Um, but I'm going to take a wild guess that a lot of people in this audience are saying Republican House, Republican Senate, they're not getting anything done. Great. Yeah. You know, so, so it is, is, you know, I mean, to use a phrase from political, are, are checks and balances such a bad thing? No, it's not a bad thing if there is a capacity to reach agreement on some other points. The problem is that we're driven by these ideological divisions right now, and that's the only organizing framework of the Democrats and the Republicans. So the Republicans were completely unified when they were the opposition party to, to Obama. So you can be unified in opposition. And the Democrats fractured all over the place. They couldn't get things done because they had a million different agendas. So now the Democrats look like the most disciplined party since, uh, you know, since the Soviet troops or something like that. And, but it's only because their only point of organization is the opposition to Trump. 
Um, and, and some of it is okay. So they want to push an ideological agenda. I hope they fail. I hope, I earnestly hope they fail. But at the same time, I'd like them to build some bridges. I'd like them to, uh, to do a little bit of work around the country. I'd like them to be able to address the programs that they say they are going to reform in some fashion. I may not agree with how it's done, but the complete incapacity of government to function is a terrible disaster for our society. Well, in, in, the, in the other um, you know, factors, you, you, you use the phrase lack of social cohesion. What does that mean? So what really went wrong in this democratic moment is that the economies were sliding. And in the period between 1988 and 2008, the World Bank has these statistics that showed that for the first time, the middle and working classes of the advanced industrial countries lost real income. So over a 20-year period, China rose, Vietnam rose. There was this real rise in taking people out of poverty, something that we as humans should be tremendously proud of. But our working, our laboring classes lost out in every democratic country, and they felt threatened. And they started to rebel against the political institutions that they felt no longer responded to them. So that's when you got the rise of populism in almost every democratic country around the world. And there was anger. Let me stop stop you right there. Populism is a term that's widely used but I think imperfectly understood and perhaps has different meanings. When you say the rise of populism, what do you mean? So by populism, I rely on the, the, the definition that's sort of going around in political science circles right now. is a professor Mueller at, uh, at Princeton who wrote the leading book on this. And the definition is a compressed time frame to politics. That is, the key to democracy is if I don't win now, I'll get you in four years. And there has to be the faith that there'll be another turn in four years and the idea that there's, we're going to take turns in office at some level. So it's the compressed time frame. It's the idea that it's not my party has these views and yours has those views. Rather, I represent the people and you represent the elite, the 1%, the, the, the infidels, whatever that group is. So there's no legitimacy to your point. And... Populism is defined in the modern political arena by hostility to institutions. The populists hate the political parties. They hate the political institutions like Congress, like the courts. They hate the old institutions of civil society like the media. Yeah, I was going to say, don't forget the news media. Yeah. No, everybody hates you. Yeah, That's well, easy. Except, but, uh, <laughs> except they like Fox. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, and, but... but, but um, no, I mean, so, how, did, so, so, how did CNN become this you know, this, this item of opprobrium. I mean, it's just an incredible thing. Well, well but, but, but let's just talk about, you know, the, the, so, so you attribute the rise of populism in, in the developed world to primarily the economic sl- either downturn or slowing down since the Ber- Berlin Wall. Thing. Yes, and one other fe- feature, okay. which is more politically problematic to talk about, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a fact of life and we have to be able to address it. In a moment of insecurity, anybody from the outside seems to be a threat. And it is a reality that today we have the highest level of foreign-born in the United States since 100 years ago. Now, I should say two things. First, I have nothing against the foreign-born. 
I am one myself. So uh, there is self-hatred, but it's not, it's not that broad. And the second is that 100 years ago was when we closed the borders. It's when we had prohibition. It's when we had the, the biggest nativist reaction in the United States. So you put together, I'm not doing as well. I mean, for a lot of American people, for the first time, the gener- in their generation has to confront I didn't do as well as my parents, and my kids are going to do worse than me. That's a devastating lack of, uh, disruptor of social cohesion. And then there's all these other people coming in. And I don't know that they're really in my community. They may or may not be in my But I feel like we're making all these dislocations for these others. And it's not just in the United States. You get this same discourse in every country, including a country like Poland, where there's absolutely no immigration, but nonetheless, the fear of immigrants is one of the galvanizing events for the right-wing turn there. Po- Poland is, is also famous for anti-Semitism without Jews. Well, yes. The, the, but the, the, it's the, easier the, with Jews, but it takes it some skill not. to do it. Uh. <laughs> it's true. Okay. So just in terms of just to, to review the sort of factors leading to the, um, you know, the, the institutions we're talking about. Um, decline of political parties. Uh, paralysis of the legislature, loss of social cohesion, and what you call the decline of state competence. Yeah. What, what, what do you mean by that? Well, that's what I was referring to. Uh, I, I give the example. The, there's a, a famous architect in, uh, in Britain, Norman Foster, and he was commissioned to do two airports. Uh, he did Terminal uh, 3, the new international rivals terminal, Terminal 2 actually, in Beijing, and he did Terminal 5 at Heathrow. And at the end, he was asked to compare the experience of the two. Terminal 5 at Heathrow, for anybody who's been there, is better than LaGuardia, but not much. It's not no great shakes. Terminal 5 took 20 years to build. Terminal 2 in Beijing is magnificent. It's one of the most beautiful pieces of public architecture I've seen anywhere in the world. It took four years to build. They could do it with round-the-clock, three, three labor crews, each working eight hours. Britain, you can't do that. They don't have planning. They don't have zoning. They don't have environmental impact savings, so that helps a lot. But when Foster was asked, he said, when we added it all up, we had an advantage that China had that Britain didn't have in terms of all these regulatory delays. He said, but there were still five years in England that we just couldn't account for. It just, things just <laughs> didn't work. We haven't built a, an airport in the United States, a new airport, since 1996 in Denver. And we just, it is virtually impossible today to build an airport here. When I moved to New York as a kid um, in 1961, the big news was that we were starting up again on the Second Avenue subway, which had been started in 1929. I moved back to New York from Texas in 1999, and the big news was we were starting again the Second Avenue subway. And we just did it. And it was an extraordinary thing because you had to cut down. So you had to disrupt sewer lines, telephone lines, uh, power lines, all this, which meant you had to coordinate with all sorts of different city agencies. Nobody could figure out how to do that. So instead, they dug straight down into the bedrock to get under everything and come up a grand total of three miles later. And we spent a billion dollars a kilometer 
which is a factor of, it's just unimaginable to spend that much money for four subway stations on the east side, right? It's just, that's, that's the loss of competence. Well, I mean, one way of interpreting what you are saying is, wouldn't it be better to live in an authoritarian country rather than a democracy? And I don't think that's what you're saying, but it, I mean, one could- It sounds that way. Yeah. No, if you, get, if you happen to hit a good one, the problem is you don't, there aren't very well, many what, good but, ones. What, what, what's a good one? Well, Singapore, life is reasonable. Yeah, unless it's you re- want to oppose Same-sex marriage or well, something. I, yeah. or, 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 you know, I mean, but, but where does, I, I mean, freedom, where does that fit Look, into your, this is the, this is, your this is, we thought, template? We thought that we weren't making a trade-off between freedom and quality of life and quality of government, of delivery of government services. And so the question is not should we go to an autocratic regime. That, that's horrible in all sorts, of, even in, in Singapore. The question is how do we recapture the capacity in a democracy to actually function? That, that's the key question. And the risk we have, and now I'm going to come back again to what we're not, we weren't supposed to discuss at the beginning. The risk we have in a populist era is that we get a kind of politics that in my native Argentina would have been called caudillo politics, the man on the horse who will deliver us. And I remember I was actually in Argentina when when Trump gave one of his famous talks announced, and his candidacy started to be taken seriously. And I was asked about this, and I said, this is not an American candidate, because he said, I will do this. I know how to do this. I will deliver. And the custom in the United States had always been, my fellow Americans, you know, or something of that sort, we will do this. We have this task. We have this challenge. We of the United States will rise together. And so the risk is that our institutions will be seriously debilitated by this kind of politics of anger and just uh, individualization of the executive. And now to the optimistic side. Boy, I've been waiting. Yeah, you've been waiting. The optimistic side is that we are not the new republics of Central Asia after the fall of the Soviet Union. We are not these fragile countries that just emerged from decades, sometimes centuries of authoritarian rule, have never had traditions of self-government, of freedom, of things of that sort. The reality is that we have a very rich culture and we have institutions. And so one of the key institutions that we see, and of course I'm going to turn to this because I'm a constitutional lawyer, is that the courts have been tremendously resistant of this concentration of power. And this is true in every democratic country. It's happening in the United States. It's happening in Britain. It's happening even in France. It's happening in Germany. The courts are saying, hey, wait a second. We are not going to allow these democratic institutions to collapse. This is a wonderful quote from uh, Justice Jackson in, uh, at the time when we were trying to figure out the relative power between uh, the various branches. And Justice Jackson, who was one of our great, great writers as a, as a uh, judicial sure. figure, he said, um, it may be that at the end of the day this all fails. It may be that it collapses. But we of the judiciary will be the last ones to give in on that score. And so we have points of resistance. We have the press. I mean, don't underestimate. I, I don't. Uh, yeah. No, I mean, I, I'm serious. I, I mean, I, and I think, you know, the, the past 10 months have been a time when 
you know, the press has done a hell of a good job. It's I, the, I mean that in all seriousness. No, and, and, I, and I agree with that. It has been a, a pole of opposition. And it's not the role that the press wanted to play. The press usually wants access and trades off between access. And you, you know this better yeah. than I do. But, um, but it's been ex- extraordinary. And you get what we call civil society rising up. You get the ACLU all of a sudden quadrupling its membership. You get all kinds of institutions that are long rooted in the United States. So if if you have I mean, for example, you have universities. I mean, you know, one of the things that has been striking to me in part because my wife works for the city University of New York is, you know, the, the dreamers who are at risk and you have universities all over the country mobilizing to protect the dreamers, you know, thousands of whom are, are students uh, uh, here. Yes, at NYU, to give another plug, um, we've directed one of our clinics into almost full-time representing dreamers. And uh, 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 these are points of social resistance. I mean, there was that amazing story of the turnout at the San Francisco airport of people who wanted to try to do something. And some of them were lawyers and who took that up, but a lot of them were just ordinary people who were brought together by the media, by social media, um, okay, let's let's turn to the other area of your expertise, voting rights, and, and talk sort of more specifically about some issues that are, um, you know, highly prominent now. And let's start with gerrymandering. Um, there's a you know, big case that was just argued in the Supreme Court about partisan gerrymandering. And again, from uh, why don't you start by talking about what partisan gen- gerrymandering has been what it is now, and then talk a little bit about the case. So at the time of the American Revolution, there was this very short man who was a horrible pain in the butt. Um, and we all know him. He's James Madison. Um, and so the Virgin- his fellow Virginians said, uh, we can't tolerate this guy. He writes and he talks like he's somebody special and all that. No musical about him. No musical about him will ever happen, they were sure. And uh, so they figured out how to draw the lines for the first elections to the Virginia legislature in such a way as to carve out Madison. And so this goes back to the founding. You know, you draw the lines and all of a sudden different constellations of voters get to vote for any particular issue. And it's named after Elbridge Gerry, who was, I I think, governor governor of Massachusetts right around the same, I mean, late 18th century. Yes. Really, right at the founding. Right right at the founding. And so this has sort of gone on in the United States for a long time. There was a famous... um, Idiot Savant in, uh, in California, who used to gerrymander California every year for the uh, Democratic Party. And he would sit in the back of room of a Chinese restaurant in Sacramento, and everybody would come and buy him, you know, egg rolls or something. And he would then look at a map, and from memory, he would draw equal population districts for the entirety of California and get exactly the distribution that was necessary for the Democrats as they lost and lost and lost percentage of the vote in those days to retain the majority of not just the legislature but of congressional office. Nowadays, it's all done by computer, and it's so good. And these programs are absolutely frightening. And it's absolutely frightening what we know about you. I can speak from within the Obama campaign 
Um, by the time, between 2008 and 2012, the sophistication of the personal identification. So we knew who you all were. And we could say, this person's not registered to vote. This person subscribes to this. This person is on Facebook, is Facebook friends with all these other people who are supporters of ours or antagonistic to us. We know who you are. And we can profile all of you. So I suspect that on the Upper West Side, much of this audience will be Democrats. I'm, you, you I know, think a wild I, I, yeah, yeah, I, I think, and I do that because of my professional expertise. I see. I, yeah. <laughs> um, but it's it's down to the individual. It's it's where we have gotten at this point. But, but let, let me stop you just for it, the the whole notion of gerrymandering. There there was a a stop along the road where uh, race was involved. That that. For, for many decades in this country, um, r- r- districts would be drawn so that, you know, let's just say in Georgia, hundred th- there'd be 100 white people in one district and 1,000 black people in another district. The Supreme Court in the early 60s in a series of cases said, no, 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 everybody has to have the same number of people, right. and that's what's known as one person, one vote. Right. So the Supreme Court has been involved in drawing district lines for a long time. The Supreme Court has gotten into it, but mostly they don't draw the lines. Mostly what they say is, here's the conditions to do it. And what happens now is that you have to have one person, one vote. The Voting Rights Act says you, or is understood to say, that you have to have a certain number of minority districts. And so once you do that, what happens is that in a lot of states, there aren't that many Democrats left. And so it facilitates Republican line drawing. And so you get a lot more Republican-dominated gerrymanders than you used to, but not exclusively. Maryland, a case that's also going on the way to the Supreme Court, is a Democratic gerrymander. And sometimes it's done by drawing very odd district squiggles that are all over the map that don't look like anything. Sometimes it doesn't, it doesn't need that. Wisconsin, which is the case in the Supreme okay. Court, but, doesn't but, but, need that. Tell what's the case. What's so, the Wisconsin So case? the Wisconsin legislature uh, hired some political scientists. They came in and they said, draw us a variety of plans and tell us how Republican we can make the legislature. And they did. And they adopted the one that was the most extreme in terms of guaranteeing them the safest majority that they could have in the state legislature. Now, the, the issue is the following. I, I, uh, I co-authored uh, a brief with the ACLU uh, in the Supreme Court uh, attacking the Wisconsin plan. And we, we posited the following as a hypothetical at the beginning. We said, if the Wisconsin legislature had waited until after the elections and then taken the votes and distributed them, knowing what the votes were, that would be outrageous because that would simply be determining the outcome of the election. But with sufficient computer capability, there's no difference between doing that ex ante and ex post. And so the question that the court has to confront is, are we going to give just a free ride to the politicians? And Every other democratic country that has districts, which basically means every country that comes out of the the old English empire, has taken this power out of the hands of incumbent political officials and given it to neutrals. They create what are called boundary commissions in Canada and Britain. We're the only country that lets 
the lunatics run the asylum because this is insider game and you allow the people to draw the districts that they want to win in. So the case was argued a little more than a week ago. So what do you what do you think is going to happen? Well, every time that this issue has come to the Supreme Court, the Supreme Court has said the following. This is really horrible. This is terrible. We have no idea what to do about it. So therefore, we're not going to do anything about it. Just come back when you have another idea that we can follow. And so every 10 years, we've had one of these. And the swing vote in the Supreme Court is Anthony Kennedy. And Anthony Kennedy says, everything's a question of the First Amendment. So maybe somebody can make this a First Amendment issue. That's why I wrote with the ACLU, because we said, hey, this is a First Amendment. This just came to us. how is this a First Amendment issue? How is this a freedom of speech issue? Well, it's not a freedom of speech issue, but freedom of speech cases turn heavily on the idea of government neutrality. And so the government, so the First Amendment argument is that the government should be neutral as to the outcomes of the political process. The government, when it runs the electoral system, should be viewpoint neutral in just the same way that we want the government to be viewpoint neutral when it allows speakers in a public square or when it licenses a TV station or something of that sort. So that was the attempt. It's not a complete fit, but it's, it's not a terrible argument. And, and, and Kennedy has expressed views like that in opinions. And in Paul Smith, who argued the case uh, for the plaintiffs, read Kennedy's earlier statements out loud. I mean, you know, the, the pandering that goes on to Anthony Kennedy in the Supreme Court is so extraordinary. It's like the other eight might as well not be there. I mean, you know, because they, they're, you know, they're, all the lawyers are, and, you know, who you can know, blame if you're them? Before, to win. If you're standing before the Pope, the cardinals all sort of uh, yeah, recede yes. into, the, yes, into the side. Okay, another subject. Um, the electric- so I think, to, but to answer your question, I actually think he might, I actually think he might bite this time. Really? That Kennedy is going to retire and that, the, and that he is somebody who is deeply sensitive to the democratic legacy of the United States. I think that this is a person who's been an extraordinary public servant and I have many issues with many of his opinions, but nonetheless, he has a decency and a commitment to uh, the American Republic as he sees it. Remember, he's the he's the justice who authored all the major opinions on gay rights. Um, he's the justice who has a sense of what we should look like in the world, what the symbol of America should be in the world. I think that this kind of corruption, deep corruption, not in the quid pro quo money sense, but this kind of this corrosion at the heart of the democratic process, he do, I don't think he wants to leave the court and leave that intact. I, that's maybe Pollyannish, but I, I believe that. The Electoral College. Everybody groans. I can't imagine why. Um, what, prospects for change, should it change? So the Electoral College, this is going to make me no friends, was a great institution. And it was a great institution for the following reason. The framers were really worried that we would break up into sectional interests and that we would never be able to forge a country. So they created the Electoral College hoping that if you ran for president, you had to appeal to a broad part of the population. They were also terribly elitist, so the Electoral College, they thought, would meet and deliberate as to who would be the best president for the country. The Electoral College worked so well that almost immediately it was irrelevant. 
because the Electoral College made it such that you could not run for president without a national organization. And once you had national political parties, then everybody who was selected to the Electoral College belonged to that political party and was already beholden to a one candidate or another. So it worked beautifully in design and has no role right now and has never had a role because it, you know, every year somebody says, oh, the, some faithless elector, as they're called, is going to cast a vote the other direction. It never happens because they're all party functionaries. You've cast a vote in the other direction, you're done. You're never going to hold any office ever again, or you're never going to be given another job ever again. So there's challenges to it now, and there's two major challenges. One is to try to get an agreement of enough states that they will pledge their electors to whoever wins the national majority. And so the electoral college would become irrelevant. There's all sorts of legal problems with that. Is it enforceable? Can you do it? There's a Clause in the Constitution says you can't form an interstate compact unless approved by Congress. But that's one possibility. I've been intrigued, and I actually signed on as one of the, uh, the leading lawyers on, um, on a proposal that I came up with a few years ago, which is it's not the Electoral College that's the problem. It's the winner-take-all feature of the Electoral College that's the problem. And if you broke up the winner-take-all feature and just awarded the votes by electoral district that's problematic because of the gerrymandering, or proportionately, then all of a sudden, those of us in New York would get to see presidential TV ads, right? I moved from Texas to New York. I haven't had a presidential TV ad in my life in a very long time because why would you do that? There's no point to it. The Republicans are going to carry Texas. The Democrats are going to carry New York. Nobody campaigns to us. And so instead, everything is over the interests of Ohio and Iowa and Florida, right? So it's, it's ethanol is the major issue of our time. Right. Um, okay, I'm going to just go to some questions from the audience. When you were talking about the, the, you know, the parties, the social cohesion, one thing you didn't mention was historically high inequality. Where does that fit in, or does it? I think that fits in a great deal, because the populist anger is not just that we're doing worse, but that there are people out there who are doing really well. And but what's odd about it, it's not that there's some rich people. It's that the people who are doing well don't respect us, look down on us. It's, a, it's one of the paradoxes of our political history, that the person who's able to galvanize that kind of populist anger is an ostentatious billionaire, right? And so you have, it, it, it doesn't fit, but there is a sense that in, among a big part of American population that if they were to hit the lottery, if they were to make a lot of money, they would live like Donald Trump. They would not live like me. They would not live in the university with a lot of travel abroad and all that sort of thing. That's not the world that they aspire to. So the inequality is a way of saying these elites who don't respect us um, have too much. And so it's not the super wealthy that they care about because that's still a fascination of Americans. So the numbers are, you know, are they're, they're the economists debate how high the inequality is and whether it's, it's rising, whether it's falling. It's a, it's a difficult subject, but I think that the, the political, emotional draw of that is much more significant than the numbers themselves. Um, a voting rights question. 
Um, in many Republican states, you've had um, photo ID requirements, limitations on absentee ballots, limitations on early voting. Um, talk about w- how significant those are and relate that to the current state of the Voting Rights Act, the, the, the 1966 law. Okay. So let's start with a question. Which state in the United States has the most restrictive voting laws? Ooh, ooh, Makes know, it the hardest to vote. Uh, 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 okay. Well, co- yeah. What, all right. Anybody know just off the top of your head? New York, New York yeah. exactly right. Yeah, it, which I don't believe is a Republican state no, the it's last not. time I checked, because no, I'm an expert not. on this stuff. Uh, you yeah, know? you are. Yeah. And uh, um, so the question is, how hard is it really to vote in any of these states? But let me, ask a di- let me pose the question in a different way. It is believed at present, strongly believed by Republicans, that high turnout means the Democrats win, and low turnout means Republicans win. Why do they believe that? Because it's been true since 2008. Go back to 2004, very high turnout, Republicans win. Really high turnout in Ohio, that tips the election. But people tend to have telescoped uh, memories on these sorts of things. And the Democrats believe high turnout, we win, low turnout, they do. So the political fight has been over how easy it should be to vote. And the Republicans, and it's the first time that we've had a concerted effort in the United States since the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th century, where one of the major political parties has really dedicated itself to making it harder to vote. I don't think they've had very much success with it, because largely the things that they pick up on, like photo IDs, tend to be more symbolic than real. Keep in mind that at the highest level in a presidential election, about 60% of eligible voters turn out. How many people will turn out? What percentage will turn out in the mayoral election in New York? It'll be 30% if, if it's high. Um, and the people who turn out tend to be engaged. They have photo IDs. People who don't have photo IDs in our society, not all, not every, but by and large, are disengaged, and they don't vote. And it's, it's a terrible thing, but they don't vote. So how much effect this has is open to dispute. But it's, it's the frontier of a big political divide. And it's just horrible to think that what's being held hostage is just the basic idea, the most fundamental, that you're able to vote. That's, that's awful. It hasn't had that much effect. Is it directed against black people which is, or minorities, which is the, the import of your... Um, of the other part of the question. And clearly, Republicans know that the, the, the bastion of support for the Democratic Party is in minorities, and Democrats know that minorities are their most vulnerable voters. They are the most difficult to mobilize, and until recently, they didn't turn out as much. Now it turns out that the single greatest group for turnout is black women. So that's, that's a change in the, uh, in the political culture. It's an important change. Um, so uh, there is a racial dimension to everything that's Republican versus Democrat now. You can't avoid that element of it. Is it inspired by race? In part, it's at least because of indifference to race. But the ground zero for all the Republican experiments and how to drive down the ballot was Kansas. 
And Kansas is not a heavily black state. And the person who was the one pushing it, who was Secretary of State, a guy by the name of Chris Kobach, is now the head of the Presidential Committee on Election Administration, the Presidential Commission. So um, there is a nasty racial edge to it, but this is just hardcore partisan politics, which can't be divorced from the race issue. Um, you talked earlier about the decline of the political, the, the power of the political parties. We have a two-party system. Why just two? Why is that such an enduring feature of American democracy that, you know, lots of things change, but third parties have never had any success here to speak of? We've had the same two parties since the 1830s. We've gone through civil war. We've gone through several world wars. We've gone through presidential assassinations, depressions, all the rest. We've got the same two parties. And the question is, why don't we get other parties? Why don't they come up? And they used to come up a little bit for one election cycle on one issue. Uh, Ross Perot, you may remember, and the Reform Party for a bit. But the basic reason is structural. We have what are called first-past-the-post elections. That means somebody wins, somebody loses. So if I am a Democrat and there is a Democratic candidate and I want to be more to the left than that candidate, I could vote for a third party. But that means delivering the election to the Republicans. And if you're a Republican and you want to be more conservative, you want to be the Christian coalition or you want to be uh, the Tea Party or something like that, you can run an independent candidate. But every vote for that candidate siphons off support for the Republicans. And so the game is played that a vote for a third party is a vote for the party you're most hostile to. And uh, let me just throw out a name, Ralph Nader. Um, and you, you understand that why the third parties don't take hold in the United States. Where they take hold, one of two conditions applies. Either you have proportional representation, which means every party gets a proportionate share in the legislature, or you have strong regional uh, commands to government, like in Canada. So one of those two conditions is necessary for multiple parties. You're talk- there, there is no jurisdiction in the United States, there's certainly no state, or maybe there are, I don't even know if there are smaller jurisdictions, that do have proportional representation. Or, or oh, do, yes. There's some do? Oh, yes. Central places in the United States, like Cambridge, Cambridge Massachusetts. Oh, that's right. Cambridge, Massachusetts. You, know, you the, used to the, rank the candidates yeah, for city council. Yeah, you rank the candidates yeah. for city council. And there are uh, locales that have, and I've written laws to permit Texas school boards to be elected by a form of proportional representation. Uh, so there are, at the local level, experiments. But there's a statute. That's from 1842 that says Congress has to be elected by single-member district. And so there's a limit to how much rep, uh, experimentation we can do at the national level. Um, we've talked about you know, various, um, you know, various issues. What's the biggest threat? What's the big, of all the things we've talked about, what worries you the most? The president. The president, yeah. That's a, yeah that's a good, and, and not just this president, but the collapse of all the other separation of powers, the concentration of complete authority in the hands of the executive, the rise of the administrative state, the size of the administrative state, the fact that executive fiat determines so much 
of our uh, political life. But, but isn't it also true that in the absence of laws, the new president can, and this president has, undone a lot of what the previous president has done. So, so maybe the presidents aren't that powerful. Maybe the president, I mean, the, it, it, the, the work can be undone overnight in the way that if you had a strong legislature, it couldn't. There was, there's a, a period in time in which country of New Zealand, which is a little country that has heard of hobbits it. and stuff like no. that. Yeah. And uh, they had a system of every election determined the entire government. And they had no checks and balances. It was parliamentary. And so they were tightly divided between labor and conservatives. And so every, every couple of years, the government would change 180 degrees in the other direction. And that was an absolute disaster. Because it meant you couldn't govern. You couldn't plan for the long term. You couldn't make arrangements in the, in the way people organized their lives because everything was up for grabs all the time. If we have a system in which one president says to perfectly decent foreign-born people who've worked hard, register with the government, we'll protect you, we'll give you a way in to stabilize your relationship to our country and give you citizenship ultimately, and the next one says, idiot, you just signed up with us. We're coming after you based on that. That's not governance. That's a disaster. And that's the problem with having executive fiat followed by executive fiat in the opposite direction. Yes, it's self-canceling. But that assumes that we don't want our society to move forward. It assumes that we don't want our government to do anything. Okay, we have one more question. And, you know, are you ready for some football? Um, what about the, the constitutional dimension, if any, to protests during the national anthem? Is that okay? Uh, Is that, it, it, well, if uh, there would not be a constitutional dimension um, unless the state tried to do something stupid to stop it. And we have this glorious pattern now that the state announces through Twitter what its intentions are all the time. So we have, we have Twitterized or tweeted, no, tweetedized or whatever the term would be, uh, our constitutional law. In the, in the um, uh, travel ban cases, the court started to rely on, on President Trump's late night tweets as evidence of governmental intent, which was a relevant factor in that. And so the, but, but, the protests but. could become a First Amendment issue if the state gets involved. And certainly if Trump is pushing this, it will be that. Really? Because, I mean, private employers do not have to. The First Amendment does not apply. I mean, That's if I right. start endorsing candidates, which is something I clearly have a constitutional right to do, CNN would be well within its rights to fire me because they have rules against that. So... But so I've seen you on TV. Well, You're not that far from well, endorsing candidates, but let's uh, let's, let's be clear. Have a <laughs> but um, the um, so why can't why is there any First Amendment issue to the employers of football players saying, you know what, you want to kneel, I'm going to fire you? Why is that something that the First Amendment has anything to say? It probably does not. But if they do that because they're getting political pressure and they're acting in association with the government. And a lot of these are deeply intertwined with local political institutions. For example, the, the municipalities own the football stadium, so there may be state involvement. So there's this 
other body of law about what's called state nexus. And Trump is announcing a different kind of state nexus that we've seen before. So who knows? Please join me in thanking Sam Zakharov for the... Thank you for listening to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcasts. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NYHistory, or visit us at nyhistory.org.